there was an audio tape. It was just a fascinating rescue. And so I tracked Willie down and found out that there was so much more to his story than just this rescue. This is Cold War Conversations. On November the 18th, 1965, U.S. Navy pilot Willie Sharp ejected from his F-8 fighter after being hit while positioned over a target in North Vietnam. With a cloud layer beneath him, he did not know if he was over land, where he could most certainly be captured or killed, or over the Gulf of Tonkin. As he ejected, both Navy and Air Force aircraft were already heading towards him to help. Special thanks to Dennis DeFreitas and his YouTube video of Willie's Shootdown, available in our episode notes. Co-host James Chilcott speaks with former military flight test engineer Eileen A. Bjorkman, who has written Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, a story of the US military's commitment to leave no one behind. The book includes nail-biting descriptions of air combat, flight and rescue as Bjorkman places Willie Sharp's story in the larger context of the US military's bedrock credo, No Man Left Behind, and calls attention to more than 80,000 Americans still missing from conflict since World War I. She also explores the devastating aftershocks of the Vietnam War as Willie Sharp struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder. If you've listened this far, I know that you are enjoying the podcast, so I'm asking for donations to support my work and enable me to continue producing the podcast. If you become a monthly supporter via Patreon, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, there will be details of a book giveaway of Eileen's book in the episode notes at coldwarconversations.com slash episode 190. I'm delighted to welcome Eileen Bjorkman to our Cold War Conversation. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. That was Willie Sharp on the 18th of November, 1965. Willie was flying an F-8 jet over the Gulf of Tonkin during the Vietnam War, and he has just been catastrophically hit by anti-aircraft fire while attacking a rail junction. Shortly after this Mayday call, Willie is forced to eject from his crippled jet, a move which wrenches him from the certainty of his cockpit to the deep uncertainty of the battle space below. This is Willie's story of what happened on that fateful day. To help us understand what happened on that day in November, we're lucky to have the help of US Air Force Colonel Eileen Bjorkman, who has written Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, all about Willie's shooting down. Eileen, welcome to Cold War Conversations. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me. Now, 
Eileen is no armchair author, and she has a lot of flight experience on military aircraft from 1980 onwards and continues to fly today. Eileen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I came in the Air Force in 1980, uh, which was kind of the uh, height of the Cold War, I guess you could say. Uh, At that time, women weren't allowed to fly in combat aircraft, and my eyes weren't good enough to go to pilot training anyway. So I became a flight test engineer, which allowed me to fly in the backseat of uh, various fighter aircraft. uh, And that was how I got my time in the F-4 at Edwards Air Force Base. I worked on various test programs throughout my career, uh, testing inertial navigation systems, GPS, uh, a, a system for the F-16 and F-15E called Low Alt- Lantern, Low Altitude Navigation and Targeting Infrared for Night, and uh, was sitting in the control room during the first flight of the C-17 aircraft in 1991. So uh, involved in a wide, like I said, a wide variety of flight testing and other kinds of testing throughout my career. I retired in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book, Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin? Why did you write it? So I got interested in it because I was actually writing an article for Air and Space Magazine about the F-8. And as I was doing that research, I uh, was interested in what the engine sounded like. A few people had mentioned to me that it had a very unique, uh, you know, distinct engine sound. And so I was trying to uh, get a you know look at listen to YouTube videos one night trying to trying to hear that sound so I could perhaps describe it and I tripped over uh, this rescue of Willie that was on YouTube. Now there's not a video of of the rescue, but there was an audio tape and uh, and so it was just a fascinating rescue. And so I tracked Willie down. That's the the beauty of the internet these days, right? I was able to to track him down and found out that there was so much more to his story than just this rescue. Originally, I was just going to write another magazine article about it was my thinking but it just kept growing and growing this idea that how did all these you know ships and other airplanes get there in the first place to be there to, to rescue him especially early in the war yeah you know, this was a rescue that if it had happened even a couple of years later probably wouldn't have been quite so dramatic but just the fact that everything it was early in the war and all these pieces had finally fallen in place to be able to come together to rescue him that day I thought made for a very you know compelling story um, because it also told the history of combat search and rescue. I found that very interesting when I read the book that the whole combat search and rescue really was quite um, amateur, I'd almost call it, or thrown together and wasn't a coordinated action until really quite late in the Vietnam War. Yeah, it started out, and and some of that was because the you know, there was I think a desire on the part of the you know the military, the Department of Defense, to not admit how much we were really involved in Southeast Asia. If you start bringing in a bunch of combat search and rescue units, you're kind of admitting that you're in combat, right? And so that was yeah. some of the thinking was, well, we'll just sort of make it a pickup game, and we'll let the Army or the CIA rescue people um, because they're not really search and rescue people, right? They'll just sort of go in and look and and. Uh, but because it was a pickup game, it wasn't all that effective. And and once the, I think it was really once the, uh, you know, once you had the Gulf of Tonkin incidents and the shooting really started, then they started to get a little bit more serious about okay, now we really are in combat. We really do need to bring in you know combat search and rescue units. But but because they hadn't planned for that from the beginning, it still took a while to to get everything in place and to figure out what would work best in that theater. They hadn't really thought it you know through before they went in. They kind of figured it out as they went along. But of course, Willie had none of that infrastructure around him when he got shot down. 
No, it was starting to get into place. I, I think by then, uh, that was the thing that really intrigued me by this rescue was this was the first rescue I could find where all those elements uh were actually in place because somebody had thought about it ahead of time. So, um, but, but I would, I would not say it was a well-oiled machine at that point. You know, it was still something of a pickup game uh, uh, when Willie got shot down. Now we are lucky enough, not only to have Eileen to help guide us through what happened on that day in November, but we're also lucky enough to have a recording of what went on, the dialogue between the aircraft and all those involved. Now a note of caution the recording is from 1965, when the world was decidedly non-digital and from the middle of a combat operation. So please excuse the static whistles and pops that make up the background noise. We've done our best to filter out as much of this background noise as possible. So even if you don't hear every word, I hope it recreates the atmosphere of that moment at that time. In the show notes, there's a copy of the transcript. So if you print that off or have it on the screen, you'll be able to follow us as it goes through. Eileen and I are going to guide you through this recording on a play-by-play basis to help you understand the extraordinary events of that day. Towards the end of the episode, we'll play the clip in its entirety so you can hear the whole story as it unfolds from beginning to end. Eileen, before we turn to the soundtrack, can you give us some background? Who is Willie? Where was he? And what was he doing? So Willie is uh, Willie Sharp. Uh, William Sharp uh, went by Willie. He was uh, 25 years old, and he had been in the Navy for about three years at that point. Uh, He was from California originally and uh, uh, wound up... uh, joining the Navy, didn't really know anything about, you know, aviation, but turned out he was qualified to be a pilot. He passed all the tests. And so he went to Pensacola, uh, got his commission, uh, trained uh, in uh, jet aircraft, became a carrier pilot, and then went to um, fly the F-8, which was the pretty much the frontline fighter for the Navy at that time. Uh, it was be- starting to be replaced by the F-4, but it was still pretty much the frontline fighter. His first cruise was on the Bonhomme Richard in uh, 1965, and uh, he they left um, San Diego, I think in May of 1965. So about, you know, nine months after the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, that really kicked off the, the major part of the shooting war. And so that day in November, uh, they were actually getting towards the end of the cruise. That day in November, they were uh, setting t- out to bomb some uh, targets, a railway yard, railroad yard in uh, North Vietnam. And uh, the uh, Bonhomme Richard was actually fairly far south. So they flew quite a ways uh, to get to the to the railway railroad yard. And uh, and so he was in a flight of uh, eight aircraft uh the two F-8s, of uh, which he was flying in one of the F-8s, and then there were six A, uh, A, excuse me, A-4s that were going to actually uh, drop the bombs on the, the target. So the F-8s were there for escort uh, uh, to be able to take out any uh, uh, AAA or SAMs or to suppress any uh, enemy aircraft that might show up. Uh, so that, that was the F-8s job. So, um, so that was kind of what led up to, uh, you know, getting him there uh, on the scene. So. so the two F-8s are there to provide 
support and cover for the six A4 bombers who are actually going to hit the railhead. That's correct. So yes, so yeah, the the F F eights were uh, armed with uh, rockets uh, that could um, that could be used to uh, take out the AAA sites, the anti aircraft artillery sites, but they weren't dropping bombs themselves on the on the uh, boxcars. Yeah. Okay, and so Willie has breakfast. He goes to his briefing. He finds out that he's been allocated Feedbag One Hundred Eight, which is his favorite aircraft. So. The day seems to start quite well for him. Yes. So, yeah, it was actually a nice day. I think, you know, there wasn't a lot of wind and uh, there was some cloud cover, but, you know, it looked like it was going to be, and I guess you can't really say combat is a nice day, but, you know, in terms of the overall mission, yeah, he's flying his favorite airplane. The weather's pretty good, except for the, the cloud cover over the sea. So at the same time that these eight aircraft are launching, another character in the story is getting ready for his day at work. A Vietnamese fisherman armed with an AK-47, he and his mate, what would happen if this North Vietnamese fisherman were to capture an American pilot? So capturing an American pilot, uh, the the rumor was that uh, if you captured an American pilot, that you could get a a bounty for that pilot. You could turn that pilot over to the North Vietnamese army and, uh, you know, they would, uh, they would, presumably take that that pilot off to become a prisoner of war and you would get a handsome reward um now how much that reward was or if that was in fact true i don't know um but uh, but the rumor was certainly there and uh and and actually the uh, north vietnamese army had had given these guys their ak-47s um so i think there was some belief that yes in fact if i if i capture this person you know not only do i good, do a good thing for my country but i get some money out of it as well we've talked about the aircraft here we've got two f8s we've got uh six a4s what are the other aircraft involved in this story there's several uh, search and rescue aircraft that uh, have been launched to um, to help out uh, in case somebody gets shot down. So first, you've got a an Albatross, an HU-16 Albatross, which is an amphibious aircraft, um, kind of like a kind of looks like a little small cargo aircraft, but it can land on water. And it was designed specifically for um, for search and rescue, and it can of course land on water or land. They were based at Da Nang, South Vietnam. Uh, which was um, not that far. It was fairly far north in, in Vietnam. So it was fairly close to, uh, you know, to be able to fly an orbit off the co- coast uh, of North Vietnam there in case something went wrong during a mission. So you had a crew that um, that would have gotten up fairly early in the morning to have breakfast and get in that airplane and go. They typically would fly, uh, the, the, the morning shift would typically fly from dawn to about noon. And then you'd have another aircraft that would come in and replace them and fly from noon until um until sunset so so about six hours each and um so anyway that crew took off that morning and they were up circling you know in a in an orbit uh just kind of waiting to see if something happened there was also a couple of a1s uh that had launched uh, spads and they were there pretty much for the same purpose you know just to kind of help out uh if anybody needed any extra protection or if there was a search and rescue that they could be able to help with um uh, you know, warding off any any enemy aircraft or enemy boats or anything that was approaching. So, um, so you had those two that were actually uh, in in the same orbit as the um, as the uh, 
as the albatross. So they would have joined up together and kind of settled into the same orbit there. Uh, and then there was also another aircraft. Um, and I, I'm not sure if they were, if they were supporting another mission or if they were just there to support this particular mission, but there was a, a jamming aircraft. It's a jamming version of the A1. And uh, that aircraft was up there as well. And it was also um, at least somewhat involved in the rescue. So, yeah. And we have a helicopter that appears a bit later on. Yes, yes. So there was a helicopter on board the Gridley, uh, which is a, a light destroyer. Um, they they call it by different names, <laughs> basically it's an air. It's a it's a smaller ship. Uh, it's a, a ship that's smaller than a carrier. Uh, it uh, carries anti air missiles, and um, uh, and it was big enough to have a helicopter land on the on the deck. And so just about a week prior, uh, the Navy had gotten the idea hey, let's put some helicopters on these smaller ships that can operate closer to the coast of North Vietnam than the large carriers. And so uh, this particular crew had flown out to the Gridley about a week before uh, Willie's rescue. And they'd already rescued one person, actually. Uh, They had rescued a a pilot at night um, who had been shot down. Um, And uh, and so, yeah, they were just sitting there and waiting in case something happened. So who are the key people who are flying? We know we've got Willie. Who's Willie's flight lead? So Willie's flight lead is Cactus Jack Buckley. Uh, he's flying in Feedbag 104 uh, is his call sign. So he's in another F-8. We've also got uh, Commander John Tierney, who is what's called the Carrier uh, carrier Air Group Commander. Uh, they abbreviate that CAG. Uh, and he's basically in charge of all the squadrons, the flying squadrons on the character, uh, excuse me, on the carrier. And... Um, and so those are kind of the two main players uh, within Willie's um, within Willie's flight. So the players in this drama are the two F8s, Feedbag 108, piloted by Willie, and his flight lead, piloted by Cactus Jack, in Feedbag 104. There are six A4s. We hear from two of them. The one piloted by John Tierney, callsign Rocket 88, and Chippy 3. In terms of the ships, we hear from Fleet Fox, which is the USS Strauss. And in terms of rescue aircraft, with the Albatross out of Da Nang, with the call sign Crown Alpha. And then we have the Sea Sprite, a helicopter off the Gridley, with the call sign Angel 43. That's correct. So yes, so John's leading. John Tierney is leading the overall raid in the A four, uh, and his call sign is Rocket eighty eight. So he gets a special call sign because he's the CAG. So, so he has a different call sign from everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> he also has a very distinctive voice on the tape. So we know that Willie is launched in Feedbad one hundred eight. He's launched from the carrier Bonnie Dick, and is inbound to his target. What happens next? So, uh, well, first of all, there was, and this is significant, um, there was a cloud cover over the Gulf of Tonkin that morning. And uh, at about 1,500 feet, uh, as best I can ascertain, I don't have the exact 
you know, altitude of the clouds, but it was about 1500 feet. So high enough to be flying, uh, you know, for the search and rescue crews to be flying below it is, is where they were orbiting. Uh, so Willie's inbound to the target. It's cloudy, it's cloudy, it's cloudy. You know, they're not even sure they're going to be able to find the target. Cause remember this is 1965. So you know, they've got to, they've got to be able to visually see the target to be able to, to hit it. Um, uh, fortunately the target was not that far inland. Um, and, uh, but as, as they, uh, you know, crossed over the coast and they started getting to inland, uh, you know, after a few miles, the clouds started to open up, you know, um, and, uh, and, and they were able to find the target and the first three A4s, uh, delivered their, uh, their first, uh, weapons to, to the target, you know, with no, um, with no problems. So, uh, and then the second uh, set of three A4s was about to deliver their weapons when there was a, a AAA site that, that, you know, uh, came active, you know, when they saw it, when they realized that they were being shot at, they, you know, bombed, they, you know, uh, uh, brought the AAA site up and, and started firing at the attacking aircraft. And that was exactly what Willie and, uh, and his flight lead were there to do was to take out those uh, AAA targets, you know, maybe not necessarily destroy them, but at least get them to, you know, stop shooting back. And, and so, um, so they started to head over towards the, um, uh, towards the AAA to start taking that out. Well, the second uh, set of aircraft um, went in and delivered their bombs. But then the day turns slightly more complicated for Willie. Yes. So, um, so there was actually a second site that was firing, and uh, he was uh, he started to turn towards that site, and then uh, and then got hit by AAA himself. So, so kind of a thump mm. thump. So, yeah. And that hits his hydraulic systems. Yes. So, yes. What do hydraulic it, systems do on a sh- an aircraft, and why are they important? Or yes, on uh, this particular aircraft, uh, the hydraulic system was very important because it uh, it was needed in order to be able to. Uh, first of all, it was needed at least partly for the flight controls. Uh, he would have needed it to put down the landing gear. Uh, I mean, there's, it, it runs a myriad of systems that are critical to, uh, getting the aircraft back on the carrier. Now you can fly the aircraft with just one hydraulic system. It's got some backup systems designed to get it safely to the carrier. So if it had just been the hydraulic system, he probably wouldn't have been able to get it back, but it also, um, it also started a fire and that's not something you're going to fly back to the carrier. So No, and in fact, that's what, um, Rocket 88 says that he needs to deal with more promptly than anything else, isn't it? Yes, yes. So, yeah, once they catch up to him and realize that he's on fire, uh, and he can't see the fire. That's the other thing is he's not getting any indication in the cockpit that he's on fire. So uh, once once his, you know, wingman and John Tierney, you know, catch up to him and say, hey, you're on fire, you've got to get out, uh, you know, then everything kind of goes downhill from there. So, so willie has gone in to hit, one AAA site. He's been hit by a different AAA site. His hydraulics have been smashed and he's on fire. What does Willie do once he's been hit? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. 
to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So the first thing he did once he was hit and he realized that, uh, you know, that that he might have to eject, uh, you know, he didn't know that initially, but, you know, his first thought was he might have to eject. First thing he did was hit the afterburner and head east, uh, back out over the Gulf of Tonkin, because he knew if he uh, landed over North Vietnam, you know, if he parachuted out of the airplane and, and landed over North Vietnam, that he would probably wind up being a POW. He knew if he got out over the Gulf that his odds of surviving and not becoming a POW were much greater. Eileen, what are we going to hear here? Yeah, so the first thing you're going to hear is actually quite a bit of noise. And then uh, and then you're going to hear uh, Willie coming in and saying, I have 56 miles to the ship. What he's talking about there is he is uh, using a navigation aid on the Strauss. Uh, and he's using that to, and so to, to navigate or to help him navigate and to help everybody else know where he is. So he's saying, I'm 56 miles away from that ship at this time. So, and everybody knows he's to the West. Um, so they know roughly where he is at that point. And then Rocket 88, um, John Tierney comes in and says, Hey, you know, give a Mayday call. And so the next thing you'll hear is, um, Willie giving a Mayday call. And you'll notice by the time he makes that call, he's already uh, covered another three miles. So he's traveling pretty fast at this point. You know, he's going about 450, 500 miles an hour. So he's zipping along pretty fast. And then he has a, a conversation with um, with uh, John Tierney. Uh, you know, he's saying, hey, uh, I, I don't have a fire warning light. You know, he's I think he's not quite believing that he's on fire yet. You know, and and uh, and then he says, well, you know, I, I want to stay here a little longer because I want to try to get as close as I can. And I think, you know, he's saying I want to get out as far over the Gulf as I can. And uh and so then there's a little bit of, of conversation going back and forth about, you know, okay, I'll tell you to eject, but, you know, okay, that's going to be up to you to make up your mind. And then uh, and then you hear uh, Crown Alpha checking in. So Crown Alpha uh, now knows that there's something going on uh, uh, and they're starting to head towards, uh, you know, they're kind of turning in the right direction and, and heading in. So you'll hear them call out where their position and then uh, – and then um, – then Rocket 88 uh, tells Willie to try opening the speed brakes, but he doesn't have any hydraulics. Um, and, uh, and then he says, um, hey, the flames are getting worse. And then finally, uh, and the, finally it's like, hey, it's going to blow. You need to go. And then Willie finally says, okay. And he pulls the handles. So, yeah. All Okay, uh, 
Track 108, the street box, Sport Mayday. In that first clip, we heard the traffic between Willie in Feedbag 108 and his CAG, John Tierney, in an A4 Rocket 88 as they try to work out what to do with the damaged aircraft. Willie is delaying. He says, I want to stay here for a little longer, try to get as close as I can. So Willie ejects. What happens? when you eject from a fast jet? Well, if you're going 500 miles an hour, the, the main thing is there's a huge wind blast as, as you go out of the, the jet. So the canopy, the way the ejection system was designed, in the F-8 anyway, um, the uh, canopy would blow first, and then the ejection seat, which is Martin Baker ejection seat, by the way, in the F-8, uh, then goes up the rails. So you get a little bit of a kick as it goes up the rails. There's a, bar- a parachute, a drogue chute that comes out that kind of stabilizes everything. It's all very automatic. So, um, you know, Willie never uh, had to uh, pull a ripcord or anything like that once he left the airplane. It's pretty much all automatic from that point. Um, but as he went out of the aircraft, uh, because the aircraft was kind of rolling a little bit, when he let go of the uh, stick, the aircraft started to roll to the right. And so in that, you know, fraction of a second between letting go of the airplane and pulling the ejection handle, uh, the aircraft started rolling to the right. And as he went out, uh, the wind blast wrenched his left shoulder back. Uh, in fact, it wrenched it so hard that initially he thought maybe the arm had been ripped off, you know, by the by the wind blast. Um, but at that point, he's out. Um, he's, uh, you know, kind of you know flying up through the air. Like I said, he's not really in charge anymore. You know, he's kind of relying on all these these systems to work right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and and you know, and then uh, and and he's initially he's falling through the air because because uh, you know, he's still fairly high and 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 the, it's. Uh, it's set to um, to not open right away, you know, so that he's not falling forever. So he's falling through the air, I think, for about a minute or so before the chute finally opens. And then he looks up and sees that, yes, in fact, he's he's got a good chute. And now um, and now he knows he's going to live probably anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's floating down to earth and suddenly all the other pilots start to be aware of what's happened and seem to go into quite a protective mode around uh, yeah so yeah yeah they're they've caught up with him and they're all um they're all like circling around him and uh and you can't hear it on the uh on the tape at all but um they actually started to circle around him as he's descending and they're like you know flipping him off giving him the bird you know (laughs) you know and and, and just you know kind of teasing him at that point you know like kind of like you loser you know you got shot down you know and and, uh but you know john tierney you know he's not doing that you know he's in charge you know he's the adult in the room and he's he's circling over him because he wants to make sure he he gets rescued so and And at this point do you think willie knows that he's ejected over the sea or does he might 
does he worry that he might have ejected over land? Yeah, he still doesn't know. He's not sure because he wasn't exactly sure how far inland the target was. Um, and, uh, you know, he was just sort of following along. You know, he was the wingman. You know, he was just sort of following along. And with the cloud cover and everything, he just wasn't really paying that much attention. So at that point, he didn't really know where he was. So he's still kind of thinking, yeah, I, I might come down on land still. Um, or, you know, who knows if I'm in the water where I'll come down. So, yeah. So presumably at this point, uh, Fleet Fox, the Strauss, will start to make some noise and that Crown Alpha, the Albatross out of Da Nang, will start to move into action. Yeah. So, yeah, they had called earlier that they were on their wing or, or that they were on their way in. And, uh, yeah, at some point in here, uh, the Fleet Fox uh, calls the Crown Alpha and says, yeah, we've got you on the scope. We, we're we're paying attention to you. So they're, they're tracking them now on their radars. And uh, they also say we've got Angel at the time. At, we're watching Angel at this time. And the Angel is the um, is the uh, Gridley. I'm, I'm sorry, the um the helicopter that launched from the Gridley. So yeah, so they're, so they're tracking them as well. So, and then there's also the, um, uh, the, one of the A1s calls that they're on the way in one of the SPAD pilots, milestone 611. second clip we hear the pilots monitoring willie as he comes down on his parachute through the clouds it becomes clear that he's going to land in the sea but not far from a north vietnamese fishing fleet and we hear rocket 88 squawking mayday as willie is no longer able to do so okay mayday mayday We also hear an enthusiastic A4 pilot, Chippy 3, offering to use his 20mm cannon, 20 mic mic, to look after Willie as he floats down. And we hear Tom Saint sing for the first time as he flies towards Willie and the A1 spads move to provide overwatch. Let's 
So Willie's coming down to land in the sea. Nearby are some fishing vessels. What kind of threat does this present to Willie? So the biggest threat is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that a lot of the fishermen on these boats are now armed. You know, they're not part of the army or the navy, uh, you know, of North Vietnam, but they have been given uh, AK-47 so that they can capture enemy pilots. You know, enemy pilots were like gold to the to the North Vietnamese, and so um, uh, so that. So that was the biggest threat that, you know, this uh, small arms fire, if you will, not so much a threat to the other aircraft, but a threat to uh, the, the pilot who's being rescued. So Willie lands in the sea, very close to the Frissing fleet. Here is what Willie had to say about what happened. I had injured my arm in the ejection. And when I landed in the water, I was among a bunch of North Vietnamese fishing boats and junks. And... Uh, I hoped that they hadn't seen me descend through the clouds because the bases of the clouds were quite low. But uh, when I landed in the water, I had already deployed my raft, so I just hung my arm on the raft and kept my head down, hoping that they wouldn't see me. I knew the other airplanes knew where I was, so it was just a matter of time before they could come in and, and uh, help. But uh, about the second time I topped out a swell, the fishing boat was coming toward me. And when he got there, the uh, guy had an AK-47 and uh, very agitated and indicated I should get on board. So I let go of my raft and tried to climb on board and I'd injured my left arm. So I had difficulty getting up there and the longer it took, the more agitated he became. And finally I got up and he struck me in the face with his rifle butt and uh, I almost passed out. But I was able to stand up and lift my arm over my head to indicate that I wasn't going to be any threat to him. And he stopped hitting me, and so uh, there was another guy on board who came and took the pistol from me, the Navy issued 38, and he went back up to the front of the ship. So Willie is a prisoner on a North Vietnamese fishing boat. Eileen, what's happening in the air at this time? So by now the uh, the spads uh, have arrived and they've figured out that oh this isn't just a bunch of open water you know somehow he managed to come down in the middle of a fishing ground and uh, so they're moving into place to protect him so uh, they they see that he's uh, on the boat and they start flying circles around the boat basically uh, trying to um, uh, you know tr- trying to see what's going on and then. Um, uh, and then you know, see if maybe they can intimidate the the fishermen on the boat. The uh, obviously they can't shoot the boat itself. You know, if if Willie hadn't been on the boat and they were threatening, you know, then he they would have shot the boat. But Willie's now on the boat, so they don't really have that option anymore to to just shoot the boat um, because then that would obviously injure or kill Willie too. Uh, they sure did away with that. They're not so many quicker as so right now. Uh, 
So we hear two important things in that clip. The boats are coming closer and that the seaplane is unable to land because it can't eject one of its fuel tanks. Ali, why is it important that he ejects his fuel tank before he lands? They weren't allowed to uh, land uh, with only one of the fuel tanks um, because uh, I'm assuming there was some kind of a, a, a loading problem uh, that would that would cause a, a structural problem or something. So, um, but they would have landed if if Willie had been in an imminent danger, uh, they would have landed to pick him up uh, even with the you know, even without being able to get rid of both of them. But because the helicopter was inbound, uh, they chose to let the helicopter make the pickup. But Willie has been captured by one of these North Vietnamese fishing vessels, as you say. So an air attack is not an option. Let's listen to what Willie did next. Um, I carried this weapon in a survival vest that, that I had around in both pockets of the survival vest were zippered closed and this one happened to be in the, the left side so I could get it with my right hand. Um, I was right about the other airplanes knowing where I was because almost as soon as I got standing on board the, the fishing boat, uh, one of the A1s made a low pass over the top of the boat. low enough that I could feel the prop wash and smell the exhaust. And when they did that, the guy with the AK-47 cowered down and backed under a little shelter, sort of in the middle of the boat. So that's when I decided maybe I could get the pistol out and effect my escape, as they say in English novels. So I let another opportunity pass. There were two of them, and they were just in a great big circle going by. So I decided the next time he wasn't looking at me, I would try to take the pistol out. The airplane flew over, I looked, he still wasn't paying attention to me. So I unzipped it and reached in and it was in about this position. So when I got it, I was able to pull it out and have it in my head. My problem was cocking the thing. You have to pull this blade back. My left arm was injured so badly I had no strength. So I wound up leaning against my knee like this and was able to cock it successfully. And I think my motion caught his attention, or he heard the thing cock, but anyway, then he looked up at me. He looked back at the other guy as if to say, wait a minute, you took his pistol, and now he was confused because I was now holding a pistol in my hand. 
And uh, so once he decided that it really was a pistol and I was a threat, he started to turn the AK-47 at me and I shot him three times in the face. And he went down. What did the other guy do? Um, he raised the 38 and pulled the trigger. It was our squadron policy to carry four rounds in there, so if you dropped the pistol, it wouldn't fire, or if you pulled the trigger without meaning to, um, it wouldn't fire, and that's the condition mine was in. He pulled the trigger once, it didn't fire, so he dropped it and jumped in the water. So at that point, I put the safety on this thing, put it back in. My I still had my raft floating, and I was attached to it with a yellow lanyard. Mm -hmm. So I just jumped back in the water and pulled my raft over to me. And HU-16 had arrived, an albatross, an amphibious airplane from Da Nang, and they had dropped a smoke light in the water, so I just pushed the raft over there and waited, and pretty soon the helicopter from the Gridley came and got me. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the pistol that Nina, Willie's wife, gave to him? Yeah, so Willie was flying that day with actually a second uh, second pistol, uh, a revolver. I'm not sure what the term is exactly. Um, the Navy issued all of their pilots um, uh, uh, personal weapons that they could use, you know, for for protection if they did get shot down. Um, the ops officer, Navy, uh, the operations officer that uh, that Willie had. Uh, told all the wives that he didn't think that was a very good gun. And he suggested that all the wives buy additional protection for their husbands. And so his wife, Nina, uh, she was very comfortable with guns. And so he on, actually on the way home from that, you know, the ops officer talking to them, she stopped at a gun store and bought Willie a Ruger. Um, I think it was a 22. And, uh, you know, and then he would, what he would do is he would carry the Ruger, uh, carry it in the pocket of his survival vest. And then the Navy issued weapon would be in a holster uh, that, that he carried that was separate. And it was his second personal weapon that ultimately enabled him to shoot the fisherman and to escape. Yes, because they uh, took the first weapon away from him when he got onto the boat initially, um, because the you know they were covering him with an A forty seven or AK forty seven. He got onto the boat, uh, and then uh, the the first mate um, you know came over and took the took the navy pistol away from Willie. So, and I understand that that shooting lived with Willie for quite a long time. Yes, it still is with him today. So, yeah. Do you think that's got something to do with the fact that in an aircraft, you're quite remote from what you're doing? And yet when you have to shoot somebody in front of you, that's quite a different experience. Yes. And I actually talk about that in the book uh, later on that, that um, yeah, shooting somebody from a distance where you don't really know who they are, you can't make out their features or anything. Um, I don't want to say it's similar to a video game because obviously it's more than that um, uh, because there's real people involved, but you, you don't have that connection to that person that, that you're, you're shooting and potentially killing. When you actually see the person, when you look into their eyes, it becomes a very personal thing. Even if you don't know that that person you've you've made a connection to them and it's it's much more traumatic for somebody to to have that happen and Willie goes on to become a commercial pilot after the war and it's on one of those trips that the delayed onset of PTSD brings back the events of that difficult day 
Yes. So yeah, he, uh, he started having trouble sleeping. He would wake up in the middle of the night, uh, you know, not know where he was, um, be very confused. Um, it, it really, you know, like I said, it took quite a few years to emerge, which is not unusual. You know, um, some people with PTSD, it emerges right away and other people have more of a delayed onset. So. But back to that day in November, he's managed to escape from the fishing vessel He's got back into his life raft and he's paddling away from the vessel to give himself some space. I think now what we should do is listen to the fourth and final clip. At the end of that clip, we hear mention of a smoke light. What is that? So a smoke light, it's basically just a flare that, that belches out a lot of smoke. And uh, you, you put it, you toss it into the water and, um, and the smoke, you know, can help to guide in somebody that's trying to find you. So. The albatross can't land. The sea sprite flown by Saint Singh, known as Angel 43, goes in to pick Willie up out of the water. So Willie is rescued, and we get confirmation uh, that he is rescued. What happens next? So next they, uh, they take him back to the Gridley because that's where the helicopter was from and uh, it's too far to take him anyplace else. Uh, so they just head back to the Gridley and, uh, and there's actually um, a little bit of an argument that you'll hear on the tape about, cause they, they want to take him the um, Strauss, the, the fleet Fox, they want to take Willie to another ship where the doctor is. Uh, and the, the uh, Tom St. Singh is saying, you know, this guy's wet, you know, we need to get him back to the gridley and let him get out of these wet clothes. And, and, uh, and then we'll go get the doctor and bring him back. So, yeah. so that's what, that's what they wind up doing. Uh, 
So the last thing I think you hear on the tape that you've got is uh, is them saying, hey, we're going to drop him off at, at the Gridley. So, yeah. How long is it before he makes it back to the Bonhomme Richard? So it took him actually a couple of days to get back. He uh, spent the night on the uh, Gridley. You know, they found that his shoulder had just been dislocated. So, you know, kind of put that back together. Um, uh, he was a little bit of a celebrity on board the, the Gridley because, you know, they, they were thrilled to be able to see a pilot, you know, because they're used to supporting, you know, the air mission, but they don't get to actually talk to pilots and, and see the pilots much. So they were actually thrilled to have him. They took him on a tour of the ship. You know, he got to go meet the captain. They, uh, you know, had uh, had, had dinner and everything. And then the next night uh, he stayed the next night, uh, I think is when he left. I think he had dinner and then, uh, and then left and then, but he didn't go right back to the, um, to the um, Bonhomme Richard. Uh, instead, he, uh, he got on an oiler, I think, or a tanker. And then that ship took him to the USS Hornet. And then from the USS Hornet, they finally flew him back to the Bonhomme Richard. So it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of a little bit of a chess game getting him, uh, getting him back to the Bonnie Dick. And presumably he didn't fly again on that cruise. Oh, no, he did. Yeah. He flew again almost right away. Yeah, he... Uh, he he took uh, I think it was like the next day after he got back to the Bonhomme Richard. I mean they they kept him for a couple of days, you know, just to make sure nothing was wrong. And then they sent him to Subic Bay in the Philippines, where they uh, would take the airplanes to get them fixed, you know, things that they couldn't fix on board the ship. And uh, they sent him there to pick up an airplane, and uh, he flew it back to the ship. And then he flew several more combat missions before they came back. So. From a layman's perspective, and bearing in mind this is the mid '60s, this seems like quite a well-executed recovery and rescue of a pilot. Yeah, it, uh, you know, like I said, this one really was the first time, I think, where they had brought all those pieces together that was fairly well executed. But it certainly wasn't that way, like I said, in the early part of the war. You know, the fact that you had these aircraft, the A-1s there to help protect, you had the Crown Alpha orbiting off the coast. You know, that, if Willie's shoot-down had happened, you know, even a year earlier, you know, year and a half earlier, uh, that 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 stuff would not have been there and it would have been much, much more difficult to, to rescue him. And if he had gone down where he did, there's a good chance he would have wound up being captured and would have become a POW. Before we play the complete audio track to you, there's one final bit, which is recorded after the shooting down. Eileen, what's this all about? At the very beginning of the mission, once, uh, once the Gridley crew realized that, um, that uh, Willie was in trouble, they actually started recording it, which is the recording that you heard there. And uh, they made a copy of that tape. This was back in the days when people still had, you know, the big giant reel-to-reel tapes. Uh, they made a copy of the the tape and uh, and they gave it to him. Um, but before they gave it, before they gave it to him, they, um, uh, they added something on to the end. Turning Lieutenant J.G. Sharp uh, is considered closed for purposes of rescue. Uh, let history show that uh, Bill Sharp was all right, and uh, he spent two days on uh, Gridley prior to returning to his home carrier, the Baham Richard. Uh, the doctor was back aboard uh, Gridley in about seven minutes after touchdown the first time uh, to check. Lieutenant Sharp over, uh, whereupon he found no discrepancies, and a uh, robust meal was had about 1800 that evening.
in addition to your destroyer qualification sheet presented by Captain Sackett this evening, uh, this tape of the history of your first uh, punch out uh, with the compliments of USS Gridley, uh, take this and may it be a memento and perhaps a conversation piece in your ripe old age. So we've split recording into four parts for you. Part one is when Feedbag 108 is still airborne and Willie is trying to nurse his damaged aircraft out to sea before ultimately ejecting. Part two saw the other aircraft tracking Willie as he parachutes down into the sea. Part three saw the planes start to coordinate a rescue as Willie is taken on board the fishing vessel. And part four sees the final rescue of Willie back to the Grindy. Let's listen to it in one go. Yes, 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 yes,
So what you've heard is a condensed version of what turned out to be a very busy half hour of Willie's life there. Um, probably the most dramatic 30 minutes of his entire life where he goes from being in the safety of uh, his F-8 cockpit to suddenly being ejected, landing in the ocean, being picked up by a fishing boat, uh, shooting his way off of the boat, getting uh, picked up by a helicopter, and then being returned to the Gridley where he's now safe and sound again. There's further information in the episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Darren Hughes, Jim Black, Brian Vlaming, Stephen Kavalich, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.